This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Rui DeFigueredo. I am a emeritus faculty member in both the Haas School and Department of Political Science here at Berkeley. Um, I'm also the uh, chair of the Weinstock Lecture Committees. Um, Along with the Graduate Division and the Graduate Council of the Academic Senate, I am very pleased to welcome Governor Jennifer Granholm, uh, this year's speaker in the Barbara Weinstock Lectures on the Morals of Trade. Um, Before I properly introduce uh, Governor Granholm, uh, let me first take a moment to tell you how the endowment supporting uh, the lectures came to the University of California at Berkeley. In 1902, Harris Weinstock, a well-known businessman based in Sacramento, provided the University of California with a fund in honor of his wife, Barbara, uh, to support an annual public lecture on the morals of trade. The way he explained his motivations in an article that was written after the first lecture in 1904 was as follows. Thus, hope is in the air and there is a better and cleaner day in store for all destined to spend their lives in commercial pursuits. The thing to do at this hour is to accelerate the movement and to bring this hoped-for day as near to our own as possible. The California, the, the California University Lectureship on the Morals of Trade is a small effort in that direction. Others who have delivered the Weinstock Lecture uh, includes uh, consumer advocate Ralph Nader, a member of the British Parliament, Neil Kinnock, Nobel laureate, Amarta Sen, former U.S. Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich, former Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Kathleen Sebelius, and most recently, nutritionist and author, Marion Nestle. And today's speaker is as uh, august and accomplished as uh, the previous lecturers. A few words about today's distinguished speaker. A transformative politician, Governor Jennifer Granholm served as the former 47th governor of Michigan, leading a state through a period of unprecedented economic challenge and change. Uh, Governor Granholm became the first woman to be elected as governor of Michigan in 2002. And in 2006, uh, Governor Granholm was reelected with the largest number of votes ever cast uh, for governor in the the state of Michigan. Um, She served as governor of Michigan until 2011, And prior to being elected governor, she was the state of Michigan attorney general from 1998 to 2002. After leaving public office, Governor Granholm joined the faculty here at the University of California, Berkeley, as a distinguished adjunct professor at both the law school and the Goldman School of Public Policy, and as a senior research fellow at Berkeley Energy and Climate Institute, also known as BECI, and the Center for Information Technology Research in the interest of society, or citrus. In addition, she's a senior contributor, and many of you might have seen her on CNN, is the managing partner for the sustainability group of Ridgelane, is the CEO of Granholm Mulhern Associates, and serves on several boards of startup companies and nonprofit organizations. She's also the co-author of the political bestseller, A Governor's Story, The Fight for Jobs and America's Economic Future and was co-chair of Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential transition team. She's an honors graduate from the University of California at Berkeley and Harvard Law School. She has honorary degrees from the University of Michigan, Wayne State University, Mary Grove College, and Michigan State University. 
She has received dozens of awards for her leadership over her years in public service. She's also the chair of the American Jobs Project, a multi-state research initiative on creating industrial cl clusters in clean energy. As a member of Berkeley's work in the Age of Intelligent Tools work group, she has been researching ways to ensure that automation and artificial intelligence are not threats to equality, but enablers of it. Her lecture today will identify some of the most interesting policy ideas to address the problems of displaced workers, the skills gap, and resulting inequality in, age of, in the age of robots and AI, or artificial intelligence. It is truly a pleasure and an honor to have her here and for me to welcome Governor Granholm to the stage. Thank you. I am really very happy to be talking about an issue that has been so important to the, to the Midwest and to anybody who comes from a place or a family where uh, this issue about trade has impacted the family well-being. And we know in Michigan a ton of those. So I want to start with a story. I am totally obsessed about this question about jobs and how you create jobs in America in a global economy. And because I was Michigan governor from 2002 for two terms to 2000, end of 2010, beginning of 2011, I was there at, um, at a pretty amazing time. There was the bankruptcies in the auto industry, which were preceded by the bankruptcies in the suppliers to the auto industry. And when I came into office in t at, the end of, at the beginning of 2003, um, George Bush was president. And at that time, we were just coming out of a national recession. And in Michigan, the old adage goes that when the nation catches a cold, Michigan catches pneumonia because we make large products. And those large products don't sell during a recession. But, of course, at the end of a recession, when you come out, there's a pent-up demand for them, like vehicles. And so the notion is when you come out of a recession then you're going to see a lot of, of jobs. You're going to see a lot more vehicles made because those factories will start humming again. And for politicians, our advisors were saying, oh, what a great time to be governor because all these jobs will be created and you'll be able to take the credit for it. Fantastic. So at the end, in fact, the, you know, at the beginning of a year when a governor comes in, you have to give a budget address to the state legislature. And the experts were, were saying that by the end of my first year in office, by the end of 2003, that you would see a huge amount of job creation and that it was going to be all okay because our unemployment rate at that time was pretty high. So the end of 2003 comes around and... I didn't see a whole lot. We didn't see a whole lot of job creation. And I thought, what's going on here? And then I get a call from the guy who is the head of the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, which is the public-private entity that helps businesses come to Michigan. And he says, um, Gov, we got a big problem. And I said, what is it? He said, there is a little community in Michigan, Greenville, and Greenville has a population of about 8,000 people, and in that little town, there is a huge refrigerator factory. The refrigerator factory is owned by Electrolux, and they say that they are about to move to go to Mexico. And I said, wait, wait, wait. 
8,000 people. How many people work in that factory? And he said, almost 3,000. So 3,000 people in a town of 8,000? That's like a one-company town when you consider parents, grandparents, kids, etc. And in fact, Greenville had called itself the refrigerator capital of North America. They were, because in fact, Electrolux was the largest refrigerator factory in North America in that little tiny town in Greenville. So I said, when he said that they were going to go to Mexico and I was the new governor, I said, no way, we're not going to allow this to happen on my watch. I'm governor. We're going to bring my cabinet to, to Greenville and we will make Electrolux an offer they can't refuse. Well, not like a Chris Christie offer. I know what you're thinking. I'm talking about like incentives and stuff like that, right? Like what do governors do? So we did. We brought my whole cabinet to Greenville. And we went to the city hall, which was like probably a quarter of the size of this room. And we all sat around this big square table. And everybody who was anybody in Greenville was there. The mayor, the city manager, the head of the UAW who represented the workforce, the head of the community college, the head of the chamber of commerce. I mean, everybody, all the poobahs were there. And I brought my whole cabinet. And we all basically said, Electrolux was there too. And we said, okay, let's, we're going to empty our pockets full of chips and we're going to make a pile, and we'll slide our pile, and this is a metaphor, incentives in the pile of chips, right? We'll slide our pile of chips across the table to the management of Electrolux, and we will be able to save the factory and save the jobs. And inside of that pile of incentives, it was really a list of incentives, but on the list were things like zero taxes for 20 years, and that was state and local taxes. And we said we would help to finance a new factory, because you can see this is actually the factory and it was it was you know it was old and it needed upgrades and we said we and the UAW said we're going to um, offer a level of incentives they didn't want anyone to know how much they were willing to give because they didn't want other employers to be asking for those incentives right so we 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 put these incentives on the table and Electrolux takes the list of incentives and they go outside the room for 17 minutes. And they come back in and they say, wow, this is the most generous any community has ever been in trying to keep jobs. But there's nothing you can do to compensate for the fact that we can pay $1.57 an hour in Juarez, Mexico. And so we're going. There's nothing you can do, they said. And when they said that, it was like a nuclear bomb went off in that little community. This is somebody leaving on the last day of work. This is the implosion of the factory. This is the beautiful new factory in Juarez, Mexico. And on the, let me just go back to him for one second, because on the last, on the month, uh, during the month that the last refrigerator came off the assembly line, the employees had a gathering that they called the Last Supper. It was at this big pavilion in Greenville. It's called Clackle's Orchard Pavilion. It was an indoor pavilion. And the whole community went. And I went too, even though I was not invited. This was like, for me, can I just pause for a moment? This was like 
this has this story this has been my defining moment as a leader this story because it was a failure on my part and it was so hard so back to the story i go to this dinner and i walk into the pavilion and there's a thousand people there and they're sitting around eight top tables eating out of box lunches and there's a sad band playing or a band playing sad music i know it was probably a sad band too it was like a it was like a community wake you know and i go up to the first table and uh, i'm not even sure what i was i mean i just couldn't get it out of my head that i had failed failed this huge factory was leaving what was this community going to do what could i do as governor i go up to the first table and this guy stands up and he's got tattoos and he's got his ha- tiger hat on backwards and he he pulls his two teenage daughters next to him he says governor i want you to meet my daughters he said look at them i have worked at this factory he said for 30 years i'm 48 years old I went from high school to factory. My father worked at this factory, he said. My grandfather worked at this factory. All I know is how to make refrigerators. And then he puts his hand, he pulls his daughters in. He puts his hand on his chest like this. So gov, tell me, who is ever going to hire me? who's ever going to hire me and that question was asked by everybody in that clackles orchard pavilion that day and honestly it's been asked by every one of the millions of people who have lost jobs in the 70,000 factories that have shut down since the beginning of this century this experience for me seared my soul I stayed till the last person left. It wasn't just Electrolux. I knew this was the canary in the coal mine for factories all over Michigan. And it was just the beginning. So, I can understand. You know, the president ran against globalization. I used to campaign on it too. You know, NAFTA and CAFTA have given us the shafta, I would say. and i was elected on that cuz i get it i totally get it i completely get why people feel like these these vacant factories that are sitting on main streets all across the industrial midwest are like permanent scars on our soul and our identity right even if they've been imploded and there's just a vacant lot that list everybody remembers oh that used to be the factory that's where we worked i totally get it i get why he focused on that but the question is is it really now in the second decade of this century is it still all globalization or is the other sort of bad guy for jobs is it automation actually about 13% of the job losses uh for manufacturing have really been about globalization and the rest are due to automation. 
So these two forces in this century, and you know, obviously globalization has been going on long before the turn of this century, but this is just when I, of course, experienced it, and that's why I tell that story. The long-term job killer isn't China, as the president keeps saying. It is really automation. And then what do we do about that? This graph is really instructive. The first graph, sorry, the print is so small, but the first graph shows manufacturing employment in millions going down and manufacturing output going up, right? Increases in productivity going up despite losses of jobs in manufacturing. And um, there's all these shock, shock studies that are out now. Automation to displace 20 to 25%, eradicate a third of America's workforce, Machines will do half our labor in eight years. Ah, we're going to lose. We're all going to die. We're going to be taken over by robots. What is going to happen? And if I told that guy in Greenville that there is an army of millions of, let's say, fourth graders who would be willing to do this job, not for $1.57 an hour, but say 40 cents an hour, he would freak out. In fact, there's your army, the army of job, the army of workers that can do the jobs for so much less money. And Electrolux is now delivering refrigerators using autonomous vehicles, so the driver's too gone. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? There was this poll. This is to the human side of this. There was a poll that was done after the 2016 election. It was to blue-collar workers in the industrial Midwest. And this was the question that was asked. Would you rather work full-time in a good-paying factory job or in a salaried office job? What do you think people said? Factory, yeah. By huge margins. 72% said I'd rather work in a factory job. 28% in an office, salaried office job. So the economy is shedding the exact kind of jobs that these workers want. There's real pain out there in the industrial Midwest. But the question is, where are the jobs and where are they going? Well, we all know that tech is dominating, right? The economy, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, data, you know, the whole, we see it, we live it, we're near Silicon Valley, blah, 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 blah. So tech is dominating the economy. The, um, se the sector is leaving the rest in the dust. If you look at the growth companies, obviously they're all tech companies, or most of them are tech companies. And in fact, the top 10 uh, tech bosses, billionaires, are, own more wealth than 40% of Americans. So not only are people concerned that the jobs are going away by the companies that are coming out of Silicon Valley, but there's also this incredible inequality that is cre being created as a result of big tech, data, AI, etc. So the global average salary of a tech worker, about 135000 so if you're in that sector, you're doing great as a worker. That's the global average. But if you're not you may be left behind. This income inequality, the blue line 
uh, going down, the red line going up. The top 1% is the red, the bottom 50% is the blue. This is not a new story. You've heard it talked about, but it's just to underscore the fact that historic inequality is happening at the same time as tech is dominating and as um, you know, AI is replacing an awful lot of these jobs that were historically here. To me, this stat sort of says it all. Despite having a great economy, we're told, you've got 40% of Americans who don't even have $400 in the case of an emergency. 40% of Americans, almost half the country, you walk out and almost half the people you see will not have $400 in their bank account in case of an emergency. This stat, however, is really troubling, that 42% of Americans have not even saved $10,000 for retirement. There is a boom coming, right? We got a big problem that we have to deal with as a, as a country. And so this is the solution that is often um, cited out uh, in a number of think tanks, et cetera, is UBI, right? Universal Basic Income. Should we guarantee a basic income for Americans who pays for that, et cetera, even though they may not be working in a job to, to, uh, m- to merit that pay. And so Silicon Valley in particular is enamored with this. Um, this is why I've got one with the pitchforks at bay, because there's some concern or some realization that the tech industry has created this income inequality and they want to keep the pitchforks at bay. And so UBI might be a way to assuage the masses, Right. So what is the answer? You know, we've been working here in this, um, in this space through our work groups about, on artificial intelligence, and we decided that it's best, let's see if there's a way that we can get AI to work with us, for us, instead of against us. But let's not call it artificial intelligence. Is there a way to instead call it inclusive intelligence? How do you get that technology to work with people instead of replacing them? Right? That's the question. Is there, can, can there be this? So what tech hath wrought, tech can help solve, potentially. Potentially. So you've heard of singularity. Many of you, singularity is the notion that we will be merged with machines, with robots at some point, that the robots are going to take over uh, eventually, totally. Um, and as Elon Musk points out right now, you already are part cyborg because every one of you probably... Is there anybody here who does not have a cell phone? Nobody. You rely... You don't have a cell phone? Wow. You are, you are the cell phone. <laughs> Look at you even get applause for that because you're the only human in the group. 100% human. I mean, what do these phones do, right? They make you smarter. They tell you where to go. They have your schedule. You can look anything up. You are so smart because you have a smartphone that you already are merging with the robot, right? So the question is, is there a way to frame this that is a positive way, a hopeful way, rather than a scary way? And so Ken Goldberg, who is here at, uh, at um, UC Berkeley, he's, he does all of the stuff with the robots. He heads the robot, whatever, I don't even know what it's called, but he has come up with a solution or a theory of the case, which is called, which he terms multiplicity, which means that instead of being replaced, that robots and AI can in fact enhance workers' skills and make them better, make them more valuable. If if the training is right, right? If you can figure out how to make it successful. So the thought experiment goes like this. I'm sure many of you have seen this, but since the ATM was introduced and people thought, oh, all the 
the teller jobs are going away as a result of ATMs. So answer the question. Do we have more or fewer bank tellers since the late 90s when the ATM became kind of ubiquitous? Not same. We got more, more tellers since 2000. The number of full-time bank tellers increased 2% a year, but the entire labor force only grew 0.6% per year. Grew faster than the labor force. Or same thing with barcode scanners. Oh, we are not going to have any real people at the grocery store anymore. You are going to be doing the work. Have we got more or fewer cashiers? More. I kind of led you into that, didn't I? Yes, we have more. Again, growing at an annual rate of 2.1% when the labor force grew at 0.6%. So what's going on with this? It goes back, remember the old Luddites who, used to, who threw the stuff in the loom to make sure that they still had jobs doing weaving, right? So, you know, they didn't throw weavers out of work. It's a classic case of, um, you know, it's a, classic, it's a classic economics that when you have something created more cheaply, people are going to buy it and there will be more demand for it. And so instead of you having a suit that you would have paid your whole annual salary for because it was all done by hands, now you can have a suit a day if you buy it at H&M because of the huge volume that's put out and they're practically throwaway clothes. So the bottom line is there are more, there are, there's more work, more workers because of technology. In fact, James Besson, who is a professor at Boston University, he actually had a a study that he did of 317 professions where technology had been introduced. And in this effort, he said, in all of the professions, all of the occupations that had technology introduced, there was only one where the actual job was eliminated. Only one. Do you have any idea which one it was? Who, know, who said that? You are on it. Are you James Besson? <laughs> Only one guy's job was lost, was the elevator operator. And even in some places, they still exist. This is what his point is, that employment grows significantly faster in occupations that use technology more. And this is true not just inside of those occupations, but also externally. So um, Enrique Moretti, who also is a professor here at Berkeley, he, did a, he wrote a great book called The New Geography of Jobs. He studied the impact of technology on employment um, around the employment. So he uses as an example Apple. The classic case, Apple employs, you know, 12,000 people or something like that in uh, Cupertino at the Apple headquarters, but 60,000 people in the economy around Apple that aren't even in tech. And so the presence of that technology creates a dynamism that he suggests um, technology has a great impact on. All right. So I just want to focus for one second on one example of, um, of a technology, a product that could be significantly impacted negatively or positively by technology. And that is the mother of all technology platforms, which is the autonomous vehicle. And so there are, you know how many drivers, that people who drive for a living, what would you say in the U.S.? 
How many people drive for a living? Five million. Five million people drive for a living. When you consider like Uber, taxi drivers, truck drivers, etc., five million people. That five million is like comparable to the decline in manufacturing jobs that we've seen so far this century. So the potential for losing jobs in this space using autonomous technology is pretty big, right? If you look at what goes into an autonomous car, this is just, you can't read it all, but it just shows that there's just all of this stuff. That's, you know, whether it is sensor hardware or battery storage or engine efficiency or cybersecurity or telecommunications connecting car to car, car to grid, um, car to people, tires that are, you know, that have sensors. I mean, you, you name it, all of these products that go into the car. But what about what goes on around an autonomous vehicle? If you think about what businesses could be created as a result in logistics or charging or entertainment or services or construction or, you know, networking. So let's just imagine for a moment what that might look like. So you might have motels. You might need to go to L.A. for a meeting. And you decide, I'm not going to rent a motel, a hotel down in L.A. I'm just going to get in my little autonomous vehicle or I'm going to call one up and they're going to take me to to LA, and I am going to, um, if you look, I don't know if I've got, yeah, I do have, can you see this? I love, this, this is a photoshopped thing, and I didn't do the photoshop, but I was sort of chuckling as I was looking at this picture, because guy lying down, sleeping, and his high heels and sandals are over here, <laughs> his purple and pink, he's kind, it's very forward looking, it's very gender fluid. But bottom line is he's got his guitar, you got your toilet, you got your you have your sink, you wake up in Los Angeles, you've paid $40 for the ride, you're fresh, you take another one coming back, you could be working, a motel on the road, literally. What about this? These pop-up shops where you can, you know, you feel like you want to you don't want to just buy a pair of shoes through Amazon cuz you want to try them on. You just, you know, Uber up your pop-up shop and try your shoes on right there or I love the fact that the opportunity for mobility for people with disabilities is huge. You can create um, entire services around getting people with disabilities from place to place and configure the vehicles to be able to serve them. This artificially intelligence transportation, this is so interesting. This says Ollie. This is a, um, a small little bus, and the bus will pick you up. And they imagine that because it has huge, it's got a robot, they partner with IBM Watson. And so they will pick people up on a route. They will connect you to your cell phone. They'll know when your laundry needs to be picked up and ask you, um, do you want me to stop at the laundry on your way home? They'll know that you like that Starbucks chai latte, and they'll stop and ask whether you want me to stop on your way home. It's a little creepy, right? Because they'll have access to your information and all of that stuff about your personal life um, is a big issue around all of this. But that's personalized artificial transportation. What about working out? on the way home. What if you could imagine, a, you know, I don't know if you could do a treadmill, that would be a little bit dangerous, but at least bikes, you know, working out on your way home. Um, this, the, uh, the stuff around it. So 
There is, so um, there's 20, no, there's 200 square miles of parking in Los Angeles. The whole city of San Francisco could fit into the parking lots in Los Angeles. So we have this massive housing crisis, right? What if you don't need parking lots? So what do you do? You could build housing, affordable housing. And many of these housing units they're talking about, you would get a unit and you would have access to the autonomous vehicles as a service in the basement. There would be like a small fleet for the people who live in those particular apartments, and you would be able to access them when you need them, right? Or rethinking the curb, meaning that you wouldn't need parking, so you could have, you could see these cafes, obviously, expand significantly and take advantage of that extra space, rethinking the garage. You don't need your garages anymore, so the garage becomes the next Airbnb or the next small unit, your ADUs, et cetera. They get, you can imagine um, businesses who are thinking about oh, doing construction in small living spaces since garage won't, garages won't be necessary. This, um, I'm hoping I can... I can what do you think? Do you think we can press? I'm a little worried. If we can press go on it, maybe not. This is, this is just a quick little, this little delivery thing. For any of you walking around campus, you see a version of this. I just passed one as I was walking up, delivering little items to you. It won't go on a freeway, but it will deliver your groceries to you, which is kind of cool. And then... I love this. Um, Proterra makes all-electric all buses, and they're moving into the autonomous space, and I love the fact that they are also creating batteries as a service, meaning this as-a-service, delivery as a service, transportation as a service, in this case, batteries as a service, another whole sphere of job creation that you can imagine. In batteries as a service, they basically rent the battery out, and the buses could put their own hood cap on it, and, you know, they service it separately so that they don't have to pay for the full cost of a battery up front. It's kind of cool, a cool business model. So the question is, if it, and so that's all just vehicles. That's just one thing, right? You know that, you know, only, what is it, 40 companies that appeared in the Fortune 500 when it started in 1950-something exist today. So there's all this churn. The best example of the churn, I think the most symbolic example is, if you um, think about the Gutenberg printing press, when the Gutenberg printing press came about and gave everybody access to books, all of a sudden, and people didn't realize this, you realize, oh my God, I can't read the print. I need my glasses. So a whole market for glasses came about. Where did they get those glasses for it? Well, the Isle of, for any of you who've been to Venice, the Isle of Murano has, got, has great glass, glass making, and they put glasses upon glasses, and instead of just now, just instead of just glasses, they had telescopes and microscopes as a result, all coming from the Gutenberg printing press. So we don't know what's going to happen. What else, what other kinds of jobs or businesses could happen as a result of the autonomous vehicle or any other um, AI kinds of things? But the question for us all is, because we don't know, how do you prepare a workforce in that case? How do you prepare a workforce to be able to be flexible and adjust to the, to the different changes in the economy? So I'm going to give you five quick ideas. Um, and these are not comprehensive. These are just five ideas that people have been talking about that I think are interesting. One is, um, this comes from Europe, guaranteed subsidized trial employment. So for example, the Swiss example of having 
um, interns and apprentices. We just don't do that well here. We have got to get over our um, phobia about copying what other countries do that work because it really does work. In Germany, they have a, a, a system called Kuserbeit where they, where when times are bad, the government helps to subsidize the employment um, of the people so they stay on. They don't have to pay unemployment. You know, it's just, it's, um, it's a creative way of thinking about how the public ends up working to create, incentivize, or disincentivize employment. 85% of Swiss apprentices find a job within three months. This is a company that's closer to home out of Colorado. I pulled this up because there's a lot of innovation that's happening in the tech space about how to train people. And this one, 87% of apprentices, it's called the Tectonic Group, successfully placed in tech jobs. They do coding. And what they do is they take people who haven't even gone to college, who maybe are really interested in coding, and who may be coming from a disadvantaged community. And as a result, they, Tectonic has clients that they go and do um, software projects for, and they bring their apprentices to them, and the clients can decide whether they want to keep this person on or not. And as a result, 82% of the apprentices from these diverse uh, populations, or 87%, excuse me, are placed. 82, uh, 82% of these people who are replaced are from diverse populations, and the average salary is 75000 That's a really great program. We should take that to scale, right? And so it made me, uh, it makes a lot of us think about why do we spend all of this money subsidizing unemployment when we could be subsidizing instead employment because what what we spend we spend 24 billion annually on unemployment insurance what if we flipped that and helped and take de-risked the for the employer allow them to hire people during a training period have the government subsidy be instead of paying for unemployment paying for that employment and it have it phased down once the once the person who's being trained is fully hired on. There's just a different way to think about it. Idea number two is to create data-driven training modules for critical skills. So AI is fantastic because it allows you to, allows, um, allows the system to know where you're at, how much you know, how you are, how you learn. And so the current workforce training programs that we have in the U.S., are terrible and they're antiquated and they don't work. There's a bunch of studies about this. The evaluation of the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, 11,500 per person is paid. Only 37% of people are employed working in the targeted industries four years later. That's a really crappy percentage. The Workforce uh, Investment Act, same thing. It appears possible. The ultimate gains from participation are small or non-existent and we spend a lot of money on it. Um, the overall programs themselves fail to evolve with the global information-based economy where technical know-how trumps muscle. So what do we need to do about this? Data can make training great again. So in the classroom, I mean, if you look at AI-driven learning, it has been enormously successful in the classroom where the kids, you know, you take someone where they are at and you have them learn in ways that they best achieve. So it's both how much they know and how they learn it that AI can help. And you can see here 214% improvement through learning software compared to uh, other students for those who took the training that way. The um, Navy just has piloted this digital tutor 
um, program. And in the workplace, this was um, a pilot through the Department of Defense, it improved problem-solving performance by 94% over classroom training. We should be we should be taking this stuff to scale, right? All the way across. We're so darn slow in how we take advantage of technology rather than be victimized by it. Idea number three is to pay people for their data. I happen to love this one because it's just very cool. Um, so in this regard, um, think about it. Data has become, as they say, the new resource, the new oil, all these companies making huge amounts of money, right, off of your data. You're on Facebook, you're giving them all sorts of information. They are so happy that you are providing that to them because they can then sell it to advertisers and make a huge amount of money off of you. And you are just giving it to them. Now, granted, you get a personalized experience in exchange. And the question is, over and above that personalized experience, who gets more out of the aggregate data that we're all giving to Facebook, Google, etc.? And this goes beyond just the, those experiences. But if you think about data that is being accumulated through all of our devices, um, it's, a, it's a lot of data. And it is occupying a greater and greater percentage of the economy. And so if this is being addressed in both California and Europe have decided that you are going to own your data and that you have the ability to say what somebody should do with your data. This is the general data protection regulation out of uh, Europe, and California is just starting to experiment with this. They're not paying people for their data, but they are starting to say you have a property interest in your data. <clears throat> and so Mark Zuckerberg testifying actually said every piece of content that you share on Facebook you own. You own it, and you're giving it away. We, we actually, uh, me and Chris Eldred, who's a student uh, here, uh, did a piece on this for uh, CNN, that Facebook owes you money. There's a whole group, there's a movement here. Facebook users unite. Data labor union launches in the Netherlands. Should we treat data as labor moving beyond free? What if people were paid for their data? So the notion is instead of like a universal basic income where you are given money for, uh, for just being, you know, maybe there is, you could be given, being paid for the amount of content that you put up there. And I use the analogy of the Alaska Permanent Fund, where in that case, in that state, everybody gets a check. Last year it was $1,600 because of the natural resource that is beneath the, the, the land and the water, the oil and gas natural resources. What if we considered data to be a resource that requires some kind of shared profit-sharing? from the companies that are using it to make enormous profits. Um, you know, if AI, this is a professor out of Yale who's doing a lot of work on this, um, if AI represents 10% of the U.S. economy, he estimates that paying people for data would raise household median income by $20,000, which is a bigger increase than a post-war era. That's assuming that you get to 10% of AI uh, in the economy, which is not, I think, which actually I think is a pretty conservative assumption. How would this work? A lot of questions about what that would look like, like how do you value 
the data, who negotiates the data for you. You know, uh, people are talking about these sort of data negotiation intermediaries that would actually do the negotiations on behalf of people to the companies, how to enforce your standards, what's the role of government. Well, you know, you you look at the analogy of, for example, Spotify pays a micropayment, a royalty to those who have their intellectual property um, listened to, like in music, etc. Small micropayments, you'd create an account where little bits of micropayments might go, and you wouldn't take the whole thing. The companies still have to be profitable, but the amount of data of yours that's being used to create enormous profit, the question is, do you deserve a little share of the profit uh, from those companies? The next one is, um, I happen to love competition, and I think that from a public policy perspective, creating competitions is a really cool way of getting policy adopted. So, um, Creating a competition for a data-driven, data-driven workforce training is, I think, a, a neat way to go. So there's, you know, you see the sunshot from the Department of Energy, which was a competition about um, getting solar uh, cheap. Uh, the uh, race to the top, the X Prize, were all competitions. In fact, the um, Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act. Right now, we spend ten billion dollars to the to do training, $10 billion. If you took that $10 billion and created a competition, oh my God, it would blow the roof off. I use the race to the top for education as an example because what happened when the Obama administration came in and they wanted to raise high school standards, what they did was to say, hey, states, here's $3.4 billion. That $3.4 billion, we'll allow you to compete for it, but the price to enter is that you have to raise your high school standards to essentially be a college prep curriculum. $3.4 billion. 48 states raised their standards just on the basis of that little carrot that was out there. And I mean, $3.4 billion is not a little carrot, but to states... You know, all 50 states, that's a big, you know, that's a, that's a big incentive. If we have $10 billion being spent for ineffective workforce development training programs right now, and you put that out there as a competition among states, I am telling you, you would get massive response by both the private sector and governments who want to work in ways that would achieve great workforce training outcomes. 48 states. Who were the two states that did not compete? Do you know? Texas, South Carolina. Those were the two. And you know what the frustrating part was? We all competed. And in the first round, only a couple of states got the money. We did not in Michigan. I was so bummed because we, I cannot tell you how hard it was to get the legislature to act to do this. But nonetheless, you could, you could formulate this in a way where everybody gets a little piece if you have a $10 billion fund. Okay, last one is the idea of... Um, these new workforce arrangements where people are creating uh, employment through Uber, through an app, through TaskRabbit, etc. How do you create portable benefits for them? How do you create an environment where they are covered in some way? Because right now they have got no benefits, right? So, um, the notion, of course, that a college graduate today should expect to have 30 different jobs, three separate careers over their 60-year working lives. And this um, arrow up here, so 1995, 2005, 2015, 57% increase in the rise in alternative work, where you are 
on your own, but probably using an app to be able to connect with potential customers. 94% of the net employment growth in the U.S. economy from 2005 to 2015, 94% have occurred in these alternative work arrangement spaces. That's a huge increase, and we haven't done anything about it. And here's the kicker is that 80% of independent contractors and freelancers preferred alternative work arrangements to standard employment. So they prefer that kind of flexibility, that kind of lifestyle. They can choose when to work, but they are completely on their own when it comes to retirement, when it comes to health care, et cetera. So what do we do about that? So, in, you know, in the old world, everybody worked for something, like working for the University of California. You've got your employer, employment relationship. You also had contractors who had individual relationships with people who were hiring them. These independent workers in the middle are you know, going through an app. They really are totally a different work arrangement. And so they're unable to organize. They're unable to collectively bargain for wages or benefits. They're not protected by civil rights or anti-discrimination legislation. They're unable to receive benefits without being classified as employees. And this is the battle between traditional worker work uh, employers They don't want to take them on as employees. They don't want to have to be responsible for all of those benefits. And so how do you do do this? So we've got to create a system where you've got a safe harbor for employers to offer portable benefits without to IWs, those are independent workers, without being classified as employers. So they should be able to offer something, some kind of series of accounts where they could do the tax withholding, Social Security and Medicare contributions, unemployment insurance, retirement savings, create learning accounts without have, with, while allowing that person to be a free agent, essentially. What's the world that that looks like? There is this portable benefits um, issue has, is being discussed all over the place. It's being discussed in Europe. It's being discussed through legislation here, Portable Benefits for Independent Workers Act. There's state experiments in California and Washington, New Jersey, New York. Um, Just a quick example of this from another country is that the government of Singapore has given as a benefit to people these individual learning accounts which go with them wherever they are. They started out, the government actually paid $500 for every worker over 25 years old in Singapore to be able to get educated as a lifelong learning account. And you can take a class in flower arranging or cybersecurity, whatever it is. They just started doing this uh, two years ago, so there hasn't been an evaluation of the program yet. But the bottom line is portable benefits have got to be a solution for the workforce of the 21st century. So those five ideas, subsidized trial employment, data-driven training, paying people for their data, competition, flexible, portable benefits. And here's the finish. You ready? Who is going to get displaced workers into good jobs? Who will sustain the middle class in the digital era? Who will save us on the planet from death and destruction? Who can ensure AI will be a force for good? Is it (laughs) President Trump or our next president, whoever she is? Is it... Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg? Is it Gavin Newsom? Or is it Oski the Bear and Berkeley Brain Power? We have an opportunity to do a few question and answers if uh, anybody wants to engage in a discussion. 
I'm wondering what happened in Greenville. Do those people get jobs? Well, here's what happened in Greenville. Um, throughout my entire two terms as governor, I worked with the city to try to get them to become a sustainable community, to green up Greenville. We brought in uh, solar manufacturers. And um, because of the fact that in China they were dumping solar panels in the United States, the factory that we brought in ended up closing. So it was even more of an agony for Greenville. So what ended up happening is a Walmart came in. And so people now are working at half the wage at the Walmart. And not everybody, obviously. A lot of people took retirements. The, you know, what was, just to follow up one more uh, on it, um, in Greenville, because uh, of the Electrolux factory, there were all these suppliers in the area, right, to supply the factory. And those suppliers also closed when Greenville went away. And um, so the ripple effect in this community was really, really huge. So we decided after, as part of my initiative as governor, that we would create something called No Worker Left Behind. And I stood up at one of my State of the State addresses and said, all right, the first 100,000 people to raise their hand, we will pay for full community college tuition. We'll give you $5,000 per year, $10,000. You have to be trained in an area of need. And we had identified what those were in Michigan, like nursing and you know, in, in uh, tech, et cetera. And uh, we would pay for your tuition. And we had, like within months the whole program was subscribed to. So I went back to the federal government and I said, instead of this TAA and workforce, can you just give me flexibility and we can add more people to this? And so we added another 50,000 uh, people to be able to get trained in an area that they wanted to get a trade in. But here's the kicker on it, is that a lot of people who are like 48 years old, like that guy I was talking about, they don't necessarily want to go to a community college and sit next to a 21-year-old and do, you know, calculus when they can't even remember whether they took, you know, they don't remember percentages from high school. You know, it just wasn't something they took. So, you ha so this is why doing training in a way that respects where people are and takes them to the next level at their pace and in their way is a really important strategy. In a lot of ways, we had the union halls be open to be doing the training and bringing training into them because they were more comfortable in that, in that setting. But training has to be flexible like that. If you, if you want to come up and just wait to ask the question. So thank you very much. These are some really excellent ideas, most of which I had never thought of before, so I'll need to process a little bit. But one of the things I wanted to ask you was, could some of these ideas not be compatible with something like a universal basic income? Because, for example, your Alaska analogy essentially works like a universal basic yeah. income. That is what it does. It doesn't actually depend on their skills or their age or their training or, or the employer. So I just wanted to ask, are these substitutes, or could this be compatible no, I think, with something yeah, flat? I mean, I, the paying people for data is sort of like a universal basic income concept, similar to it. You know, in the Alaska situation, right, people um, get compensated because they own the state. And the question is, what's the analogy for a country where you have a state? Like in Michigan, we don't have huge oil and gas resources where, you know, maybe we would 
have to think of a different, uh, a different way of doing it. And the question is, is there a way to do it that, is, um, that, that doesn't cause people's hair to catch on fire because you are redistributing massive amounts of income through tax increases, right? And so the question is, is there a different way of looking at a universal basic income which guarantees people some dignity? The, the other thing I would say, though, there's a lot of pushback from people who feel like, I don't want to just be given a check. I want to, do, I want to have there be an exchange for my input, at whether it's you know, data or my work, my sweat, whatever it is. So it's, that's the sort of pushback that you get, I think, from people on the, on the left, even, who are saying, you know, UBI, the concept is okay, but you want to respect the dignity of people who want to be able to be engaged in employment. Thank you for your talk. Would you mind talking about the fact that uh, I believe that there are m millions of jobs in the manufacturing sector in this country that go unfilled over long periods of time, I think especially since the end of the recession? And I'd like to, I, I don't believe that you've talked about that. And where, where's the problem and how do you solve that problem? Thank you. Yeah, um, I would say that there is definitely a mismatch of demand and supply in certain areas, um, you know, especially with a low unemployment rate, right? People, there's a lot of jobs that are going unfilled. A lot of the work in manufacturing now, though, requires a level of skill that you wouldn't have needed in the past. So it requires somebody to have some kind of certification to do the CNC, the, you know, the, um, the machines that actually do the manufacturing. It's sophisticated. In fact, in one of the last years when I was governor, we um, sort of cut the ribbon on a factory that was an engine plant where they weren't hiring anybody who didn't have a college degree because you had to have people who knew how to operate the robots and how to maintain a robotic line. And that's where manufacturing has gone. That's why we're seeing some of the reshoring is because it's cheaper to have robots and fewer people, but the people who you hire, they've got to know how to, how to operate. So it gets back to the question of training. And so if there's a gap, it's a, trained, you know, a training gap. And here's the problem, is that when you've got a very technology-driven job, whether it's a coding job or working with robots job, the employer expects the employees to come fully trained up. They're not often willing to take the risk on training someone themselves, which gets back to this question about can, you, can the government offer a subsidized training period so somebody can learn those skills where the employer doesn't have to pay fully for it and then transition over to the employee pay. But right now they don't, they don't you know, they aren't taking that risk uh, on hiring somebody who's not, who doesn't have a computer engineering degree from Berkeley. And that's, you know, that's cutting out a whole swath of the country. You know, only a third of the country have college degrees. What are we doing for them? Good evening. Uh, I have a question regarding taxation. As we move towards a knowledge economy and a data-driven economy, what are the appropriate ways to sort of capture that revenue stream, and where do you see that going in the future? Well, this is a really interesting question. Um, my husband, Dan, who's sitting there, was just talking to me about that this morning. You want to share your idea? No. Okay. <laughs> but it's a really important question because we have a tax structure 
that, um, especially with the latest tax plan, that really drives all the revenue up, you know, benefits the people at the top and the people at the bottom are left without anything. And so can you think about a structure that's much different that really does um, allow people to make the money that they need to make and, you know, earn the income they need to earn, but, but gives a slice of that you know, to the folks at the bottom, because this disparity that has been created by the structural changes in our economy is not benefiting everybody. And so that's, it's a, distrib- it's a redistribution question that you've asked, and whenever you talk about redistribution in Washington, D.C., people's hair really do catch on fire. And so, the, you know, the issue is, can we elect people who are not afraid to say, hey, who are we as a society? Are we going to create a safety net? Are we, who are we? Are we going to allow people to be sleeping under bridges because we haven't cared for them? I mean, what, what kind of community do we want to create? And one would expect that in the 21st century, people would say, hey, we, you know, we share this planet. We share the air, as terrible as it is today, but we share the salaries for the firefighters who are out there fighting these, you know, fighting this mess. We, we share responsibility for the roads that you drove on to get here. We share a responsibility for this fabulous university. Well, we should be sharing a responsibility for one another and to keep that safety net intact. And people you know, once you start to talk about taking something from someone, they, you know, that's when people freak out until they need it, right? Until they need those services. So you would hope that, you know, you hold one end of a safety net, I hold the other, we hold it to make sure that nobody falls through, one day I may need it, one day you may need it, but in the end, we hope that we could be, create a world where nobody gets left behind, you know, where we are like the Marines, nobody gets left behind. We're all going. We're not leaving anybody back. Why can't we create a world like that? Why can't we talk about sharing a little bit more? It's a great question. Maybe you should run for office. You mentioned a couple of times, and uh, I kept hearing the word union and and labor. Where does union fit into the private-public relationship with training and going forward? Because... It's always been where people have gone and when they needed training. Exactly. And it's, an, it's a great moment for the unions to think about their role in this digital economy. One could imagine that there would be a, a, a data union or one of the existing units would, would take on the negotiation for your compensation for your inputs on data. You can imagine a world where the unions become the brokers of great skill, Rather than, you know, I mean, people see unions in these silos, but, you know, when I think about the UAW, for example, which is the union I'm most familiar with from Michigan, the United Auto Workers, I mean, they were the place where the auto workers went to get trained workers. They were the place. And so in a 21st century, why not think about that? Those portable benefits for the workers who have alternative work arrangements. There should be a union or a, a, a negotiator or you know, some entity that is pooling people's desires together and has a common face to, to Uber or whomever, right, to be able to negotiate for them. So I think the unions absolutely can have a new role if they look... Uh, as well at themselves as transitioning in the 21st century and not just, um, not just 
building on old models, but looking to the future. I think that they could. Some of them are doing it, some of them are not. I find it interesting that you mention Walmart. And something's very broken in our country because workers at Walmart, a lot of them are on food stamps because they're not making a living wage. So the Walton family has this enormous, enormous fortune where they decide how to spend the money. So it's not just looking to the government. To, it, look, it sounds like looking to the government to be more, hum, you know, to expect something more humane from Walmart and companies like that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that there isn't more accountability at the level of ownership of companies. Like we all, we, you are probably have a retirement fund and you have some shares of stock, right? I don't know if you have Walmart or not, but the bottom line is a lot of times we don't exercise any power as shareholders to insist that the companies that we invest in behave in a way that would make them be part of the community and leading as well. And so we, we identify as shareholder, you know, fiduciary responsibility to shareholders to maximize profits, and that's the only thing that a CEO looks to is maximizing profit. But maybe we should look at GDP in a different way, right? Maybe it should be about well-being of the, you know, of the citizens of the country rather than just well-being of the, of the pocketbooks of the CEOs. I wish I had a good answer for how to fix this. If I were Bob Reich, I would tell you the answer. But I will leave that to him since he, I know, spoke at the Weinstock series, but you can find him anywhere, as you know, know online. Thank you. It's a great question about how to hold uh, this, these companies to account for their role in the creation of a more equal society. So there are companies that are trying to um, evaluate human, give each person a unique identifier like a blockchain, and they're going to value, right. and you can set the preferences and incomes. So my, one of my friends is starting that, but he's already raised $200 million for that one. Really? Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a big thing. They, they used to run blockchain for IBM. This is Silicon and Valley. so the blockchain is going toward what? Well, it's a unique identifier. Every unique identifier, what I want to do is have it as the DNA sequence. So that way it can't be modified. And, and um, The other thing is with neural networks, you can actually set up a, a system which would optimize the gross value of a GDP above all the workers, what everybody's worth. That's probably what we should do because the biggest problem we have to worry about, forget Europe, it's all China, AI. We're in a race to basically stay alive against China. So whatever we have to do to optimize our fin- uh, um, economic situation, it's basically taking on. Because AI basically will optimize things in a way we've never done before. Um, and so that's what the big game is. And we want to optimize as a society, the value of a society. And you can do that through neural networks. Um, you, you have economic feedbacks. MIT tried this in the 60s. Of course, it would fail because there wasn't enough data and information, and it was too sophisticated. Now we have the models to do that. So that's what we should really do as a society. Thanks. All right, so, what, what do you think about it? I mean, what do you, no, I, here's what I would say. is I, I think that tech can solve a lot of this, and we are so advanced in um, neural networks, and blockchain and, you know, the next generation of whatever, that we should take advantage of it and, and have it be part of lifting all boats. But um, we don't do that right now. 
I mean, that's not how it's viewed right now. And so the question is, how does that get programmed? I mean, I often think about this in terms of um, the engineering schools in the country. You know, in the medical schools, um, people are take a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. We don't have that kind of, uh, there's not that kind of ethos in many of the engineering schools. Um, what they're building could be benefiting you know, ends that are that don't serve our needs, right? And so you wonder if there's a if there if it can start earlier and have an ethos be built into the education system where they're and and into whatever oath they have to take <laughs> to become an engineer that there's something that there's a responsibility to the society to community and using that technology to be able to lift all boats I think is a great idea. Yep. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm actually a student studying data science. All right. And you I... are going to have a job in a minute <laughs> if you don't already. Yeah. I actually would like to know. Um, it's very clear that technology is evolving so rapidly at like an exponential rate almost. And I was wondering, how do people? How would people entering the workforce, people already in the workforce, evolve with it? Right. Well, that's the, that's the question. Is I think, I, you know, I put up there as an example these lifelong learning accounts. But I think we should take that seriously as a nation because if you're already in, I mean, you're going to be, you know, bless your heart, you're, you're a millennial, you're going to have this great job. But at some point, you know, maybe 20 years from now, you're going to need to sharpen the saw, maybe 10 years from now, maybe five years, and maybe every year you need to go back and learn some more, right? Because it is evolving so fast. And how do you have the ability to do that without accessing some kind of, you know, uh, comp- you know some ability to pay for some upskill? Now, you might have an employer that's willing to do that, but you might not, too. So I think everybody should have the opportunity to continually learn and to have a lifelong, continuous, portable learning account where you can go back and upgrade yourself is critical. It's one of the ideas that I think some are talking about. Um, but you all who are going to be taking the baton for, of leadership in this country, you can make it happen. So you can run for office, too. <laughs> were you not excited about all of these great young people who were elected on Tuesday? Yes! <laughs> Diverse group. It was so exciting. So um, I wanted to extend just a really heartfelt thank you to you Governor You are so Graham. welcome. Thank you um, all for coming out. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.